Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with the Slate Spoiler Special podcast on Julie and Julia, the new Nora Ephron film uh, that's being released this week. I'm here with Kathleen Collins. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Dana. Who is the author of Watching What We Eat, The Evolution of Television Cooking Shows, a book that came out this year about the history of cooking on TV. So a perfect podcast companion for this movie. Uh, first of all, Kathleen, did you like the movie? I loved it. I'm still glowing. Same here. I absolutely loved it. Just finished gushing about it in the Slate Culture Gab Fest. So I'm going to try to use your expertise here to do something besides just sort of coo over what a fun movie it is to watch. But do you want to just briefly talk about, well, if you want, you can sort of briefly outline the story of the film. All right. Well, gushing aside, um, the, the movie's based on two books, the Julie and Julia by Julie Powell, the blogger who became a book author based on her attempt to well, her successful attempt to make all of the recipes and mastering the art of French cooking. Julia Child's classic, um, she co-authored her classic uh, French cookbook, and she attempted to make all the recipes in that cookbook over the course of one year. Um, the other book that it's based on is My Life in France, That it that is Julia Child's, basically her memoir, written with her grandnephew, Alex Prudhomme. So... Nora Ephron wove these two stories together. And successfully so, do you think? I think it was very, very well done. So did the structure work for you? We were talking in, in the Gabfest about whether the this parallel structure where the two people never meet, which actually I'm just realizing now is the same as Sleepless in Seattle, the Nora Ephron film, right? That there's That's these true. sort of two characters who only converge at the very end. In this movie, they never converge. Mm-hmm. Did you agree with this, you know, sort of, I've been hearing some sort of ambient criticism about this movie that the, the Julia part with Meryl Streep is much stronger than the Julie part with Amy Adams? I, I have to admit, uh, and no, no criticism of the Julie part, but I would have been perfectly happy and satisfied with just the Julia Child part because I just adore Meryl Streep and Julia Child, and I think that part was really a story in and of itself. But I think it, it was a nice blend, and it made sense to weave these two stories. Um, it's, it would have been an entirely different... It would have been a biopic of Julia Child, right? And a completely different theme. Definitely. It, it, it's a nice story to put these two things together. Um, but to say that, that the Julia Child part is stronger, it's hard for me to be objective. I mean, it felt stronger to me because I was just more drawn to it. I was more excited when those scenes came on the screen. Um, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed the other, I keep wanting to say the Amy parts, but I may slip into calling the Amy and the Julia parts, but Amy Adams is the actress who plays Julie Powell. So, um, I, I don't know what, are people criticizing the Well, I haven't actually read any of this stuff yet, but I I have a feeling, I mean, just sort of, I I guess even in the the screening last night, I sort of, I could feel the Rotten Tomatoes page in my mind, you know, (laughs) what the criticism of the movie would be, although I don't share it. I I can see where it would come from, which is, for one thing, that this is one of those movies that has basically no conflict in it, that every every once in a while some obstacle is thrown in the lady's path, but basically it's sort of, you know, a very happy self-empowerment story about two people you know, changing their careers and their lives right. by learning how to cook. And, um, and you know, I can certainly see that that makes it the feel-good movie of the summer, but mm-hmm. not necessarily so well-dramatically structured. I mean, mm-hmm. you don't really care when you're sitting in the movie if you enjoy food and those, those two performances, but, mm. but I think that would be where it would go. Right. I, I guess so. I mean, again, it's impossible for me to be objective in that way because I do love food. And I actually, having read both of those books... Um, you know that there are conflicts in those lives that are just sort of um, shined, shined up and glossed over in a Nora Ephron way. 
um, in a nice way. But yeah, it is. It's sort of a very happy. Yeah, I mean, Nora Ephron is not Kierkegaard. <laughs> like, we're not talking, <laughs> this is not uh, deep thinking which right. is brought to the movie. And in fact, it never occurred to me until last night that Amy Adams actually reminds me of Meg Ryan a lot. I know, did, did you ever think of that? Oh, I didn't even think of that. I always sort of think of her as our generation's Julie, Julie Andrews, oh, who she does I like a lot better look. than Meg Ryan. Yeah. But, but it's certainly true that the kind of casting you know, choices that she's made are putting her in a very Meg Ryan kind of kind of mold which hopefully doesn't become a hole that she no, can't dig her way no, out of. that's what I was thinking about because I do think she's more na- less cupy doll you know more natural well I guess it was after seeing her in Enchanted that I started to put her in my mind in a kind of Julie Andrews I mean I wouldn't mm-hmm. elevate her to that status mm-hmm. because I worship Julie Andrews mm-hmm. but but she can sing I think of her as a sort of all-around show person mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more than Meg Ryan who really just had the, right. the cuteness thing going for her but right. that said I mean poor Amy Adams right she has a lot of charisma I think she's a really terrific promising performer I'm actually really excited that her career is taking off because mm-hmm. I've, I've been wanting it to you know f- since I first saw her in movies but mm-hmm. To act in in this movie opposite, not quite opposite, but sharing the screen, sort of alternating the screen with Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. is just it's it's a hopeless task right, because right. I mean, especially at this point in her career, Meryl has just become this kind of bomb of charisma. Right. And she just it's not that she sucks the rest of the movie in because she's a generous performer, right. but you just can't wait for her to get back right. on screen. I, but you're right about her generosity. I mean, I didn't I I didn't feel this. Um, this like slap in the face when we switched from Julia to Amy scenes or anything. It felt it felt okay to me, um, but like I said, it was those Julia scenes. I was just I just couldn't wait to get back to her. She was so she's just Meryl Streep is so luminous, and she is in every single role that she plays. And I have to say, the voice was just. I know I shouldn't dwell on such a such an obvious comment, but she just did the voice so well. It just I was trying to imagine another performer doing that and I I could imagine it feeling like an overlaid trying too hard voice. Well, it's a really extreme voice. Yeah. I mean, even as she does it, and I mean, I imagine that Julia Child didn't only talk that way on TV and that she actually talked that way in her personal right. life, but it, it is an incredibly strange style of speaking. Yeah, and she just pulled it off. It seemed very, very natural to me. It didn't seem, you know, you weren't just aware of it all the time that she's doing this voice. It's just she inhabited it very smoothly. I mean, because this is such a gynocentric movie it's basically (laughs) all about sort of female self-discovery and self-empowerment it would be very easy for the men to as they often do in girl movies be these kind of cliched obstacles or also cliched supportive husbands in fact they are both very supportive husbands both the Mm -hmm. men in the movie who we should mention is chris messina plays amy adams husband in the present day and stanley tucci plays paul child julia child's husband who was a diplomat stationed all around the world for a while in paris which is where she learned to cook Mm -hmm. Um, and I thought both of those male characters were just great, too. Mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. really, really loved the way Stanley Tucci played that part in mm-hmm. particular with this sort of very um, wry, kind of detached mm-hmm. amusement at, mm-hmm. at his kind of, you know, <laughs> sort of living tornado of a wife. Right. And from everything I've read about their marriage, he seemed to capture that perfectly. He was he was just behind her all the way. You, just, you don't see that many portraits of, of happy marriages on screen mm-hmm. that aren't boring, and right. their marriage seemed really fun. I particularly loved that, not just implication, but basically the you know the <laughs> fact that they had sex yes. all the time, yes. right? And there's this great moment that you hear her in voice over writing a letter to a friend and saying, and we have our lunch, and mm-hmm. then Paul has his nap in mm-hmm. the afternoon, and while you hear her saying Paul has his nap, you see them tearing yeah. at each other's clothes. No, we do, you know, we do, we do this and we do that, we do other things, right? Um, I have to say my favorite scene was right in the very first few minutes when they were eating the famous Sole Meunier in um, that restaurant when they first arrived in France. And she took a bite of it and then fed him a bite. And they had that um, 
sputtering. They couldn't find the words. Right, to completely describe. nonverbal reaction. Yeah, to the and dish. I just that. I mean, I have to say, it was very emotional to me because that that story. When you read in in um, her memoir, My Life in France, she describes that scene and that that whole restaurant experience is often touted as her life changing experience. And when she it sort of began the rest of her life. And so to see that on screen was like a great moment for me. And the way that they dealt with it, with that reaction, you could just see their marriage in that little tiny moment. And I just thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it starts off the movie very strong because right. you sort of, you already have a sense of those two characters just from that sort of right. wordless moment of sputtering. Right. In and, it, and it was humorous too. I mean, it got us in that sort of spirit of, of her personality right away. Now, if I were going to have any criticism of the movie, I think it would have to do with the other husband character, the Chris Messina character. Yeah. Not because of Chris Messina. I actually think yeah. he's adorable, and he's, he's great in the part. But I think that Efren's writing is a little bit weaker in that part. And yeah. essentially, the only way she has of creating some conflict in the Julie scenes is to is to throw in these odd fights where yeah. she and her husband suddenly, you know, get upset and are basically throwing crockery about something, and he, and he storms out. Yeah, he didn't... I, same with me. I have the exact same reaction. I don't... I just didn't really like him that much. And in in her book, in, in Julie's book, he seemed like more of a gentle creature to me. And he seemed a little bit rougher or more a, a smattering of Neanderthalism oh, coming actually, out. You, you know? see, I, I, did, I really did like him. And I guess if he was a Neanderthal, he was my kind of Neanderthal. <laughs> but <laughs> he sort of reminded me of the um, the of Miranda's husband on Sex in the City, oh, except, except with more sex appeal. You know, yeah. like that guy with more sex appeal. Yeah. But no, I, th- I thought just, the problem was that there was this ongoing thread of this idea that she was the, the blog was sort of taking over her life and essentially she was becoming kind of a jerk who yeah. was mistreating him. And those moments were just, they just seemed very hastily yeah. tacked onto yeah. the movie. In fact, she was basically a, a sweetheart all the time. Right. Who would suddenly become a bitch for one scene in order for there to be a fight. Yeah, I mean, that's. I just think that's probably something that, again, if you... If you read the book, you have all this prior knowledge and you and you interpret those things differently. So to me, I knew, I remembered, oh, yeah, they, they weren't having enough sex and that really bothered him and she felt guilty about it. Um, but it, that scene in the bar when she was with her friends lamenting the fact that she turned into a bitch didn't seem warranted. She didn't also did not seem like a bitch to me. Right. And her friend actually agrees with her. Her friend, by the way, pl- played by the great Mary Lynn Rajkub, or however you say her last name from 24. I never get oh, tired of that Oh, okay, because I didn't recognize her. I've never seen 24, but she was wonderful. Well, she's sort of, she's all, uh, often the, the go-to Gal Friday best friend type Very in realistic. movies as well. Yeah, yeah, she's great. All right, let's take a brief break uh, and talk about our sponsor, Audible.com, which is the premier purveyor of audiobooks on the web. And as regular listeners know, uh, we have a deal with Audible where if you sign up through our page, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you can get a month-long membership and you get a free book with that. So even if you decide not to keep your membership, you get to keep your book. And uh, we have a great recommendation, actually, this week, because it turns out that Julia Child's memoir that we were just talking about, My Life in France, is on Audible, um, read by a woman named Kim Farrell. And uh, so if you want to get on Audible and download it, they have abridged and unabridged versions, I believe. And you can hear the Sol Meunier story <laughs> from the first person. Right. Okay, so I wanted to have one sort of um, peg to the current day because I think this movie, well, I, I think it's pretty obvious that this movie will be a big summer hit. Right. Um, it's, it both has tremendous audience appeal and it also seems very linked to our current concern, obsession in the U.S. with, with food, mm-hmm. with cooking shows, with, you know, sort of, um, well, the locavore movement, with, you know, all these sort of new trends in, in foodieism. And I wanted to hear what you had to say about that because in an odd way, I mean, it connects into that, you know, that 
set of trends, but then it doesn't at the same mm. time because the the world of cuisine, Julia Child's world of cuisine, is is a very mid twentieth century mm. one that that's very different from sort of what's going on now. I think that uh, I've heard people say this, and I'm not inventing the idea that Julia Child is sort of you know she's timeless because she always just used real ingredients and didn't have any kind of um, mantra about how you should eat. You should just eat well. And we've been through a few decades of you should eat this way, you should not eat this, you should eat this. And I feel like a little bit of a backlash um, has prevailed, and people are often... Um, hearkening back to Julia. You know, Julia just said, eat whatever you want and eat in moderation and enjoy everything. So she's she's sort of like this touchstone for, um, you know, just normal, sensible living. Although the diet that, that Amy Adams' character has in the year that she cooks every recipe from Mastering the Art of French Cooking can, must have been the most unhealthful oh, year of her life. the buttery year of her life, yeah. Scene after scene, you just see her making duck and bouffe right. and chocolate cream pie. And right. It looks absolutely great. There's sort of this ongoing joke that she and her husband gain all this weight during that year, yeah. but of course they still look like movie stars right. throughout the entire year. Right, they weren't willing to do the Jake LaMotta diet. I will say, though, that Meryl Streep really does sort of chub up. I don't think it was, I think it was mostly padding, probably. Yeah. But it was yeah, so, She's a big oh, woman. just a side note on that. Those scenes of her from behind, you know, when her sort of like her butt looks big, they they just looked like you could have imagined that that was Julia, very tall at her counter and sort of bent over too much, and her butt sticking up in the air. It looked so, just so good. Yeah, between Meryl Streep's gait and the costuming and whatever padding they did, and the fact that apparently they cast all short people around yeah. her so that she would look taller, it's really really effective. And I, she has this kind of lurching, huge quality. Mm-hmm. I can't. She's only five six. I read Meryl Streep is only five six. Oh, and they had to make her look six feet yeah. tall. Nicely done. Yeah. So, as the author of this this history of television cooking shows, you just contributed a, something to the New York Times Magazine to go along with that Michael Pollan piece about right. cooking shows and about the, the subsequent decline of, of cooking in the U.S. <laughs> right. You made this interactive timeline that was sort of a history of of cooking shows on from radio days all the way up to the present. And mm-hmm. I wanted you to talk about. Uh, we'll put a link to that on our on our page. And I wanted you to talk about how Julia Child fits into that. I mean, obviously, she's this huge seminal figure, but she wasn't the first cooking personality right. on TV. Um, do you want to talk about, you could either talk about some of her predecessors or just what it was that made such a splash in 1963 when her show premiered. She was, she was not the first television cooking show host, but she was the first that many people remember, first people, the first that many people ever saw. And she was really the first of kind of the, um, you know, entertaining cooking shows. Did her show air in prime time? Um, yes, it did, and it was uh, it was on public television. It aired on prime time at some point, I think, but it aired at different times all the time. So, I mean, I when I was watching it when I was little, it was probably on repeats, and it was I don't know some morning. Um, there was a cook, there was a television cooking show host named Dione Lucas who was on the air on commercial television starting in 1947. Oh, the very early days Yeah, of I mean, James Beard was the first TV cooking show host in 46. Dione followed him a year later, and she did French cooking. She went to the Cordon Bleu also and was very, very skilled, and she was a restaurateur and cookbook author and a teacher. And she was on the air for um, over a decade, and... Um, Julia Child refers to her as the mother of French cooking in America. She she brought 
it to television, but she just didn't have the following. And that was partially because maybe French cooking wasn't de rigueur in 1947 the way it was in the early 60s. And people didn't have TVs in 1947. And there's a lot of reasons. And also, she just didn't have the personality. She she had a very witty, dry kind of um, very um, European kind of prissy personality. Right. Um, but like she, understated, which is everything yes, that Julia Child was not. Yes. And so people, you know, she had a following. She had loyal watchers, but not the grand following that Julia got. Julia was popular immediately when she came on the air. So it was a combination of the timing and her personality that just made that show what it was and made her so lasting in our popular culture. I mean, look at look at her now. I mean, it's it's... It's whatever year it is, <laughs> and she's still she's still um, you know in the limelight, it's right? Amazing. And she's still a personality that someone like me who probably didn't ever see her show as a child that I remember, <clears throat> and she's just in parodies or whatever in clips. Everybody knows her, yeah. So, do you share Michael Pollan's sadness that he expresses in that article and the sort of decline of the cooking show and the decline of home cooking? Or are you more sanguine about the I, future? Of- I am more optimistic than than he is. Um, I mean, he. He understands the complexity he uh, of of why we cook less. You know that's what his article is all about. Many many different reasons go into that. I think one of the things that he's saying, and other people have said this, is that cooking shows have caused people to leave the kitchen. Um, I may be overstating his argument, but it's you know it's in there somewhere. There's sort of that blame. I just don't agree with that at all. I don't think that the exciting, sexy TV shows have lured people away from the kitchen. If people like to cook, they're not going to stop cooking because they're watching the Food Network. And in fact, just the opposite. I do believe that the Food Network shows, as much as they are not as explicitly teaching us as they used to be, still do inspire people, give people ideas, and do teach people on a smaller scale. And, um, yeah, I don't, I, I think there's a lot of good to be got. I think they're a force for good. I don't, I mean, they're huge marketing meccas, but I still think they're generally for the good. I hope this movie becomes a, a culinary force for the good and that it leads to a season of many rich and indigestible French dinner parties. Wonderful. Thanks for joining me on this late spoiler special, Kathleen. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Wynne Rosenfeld. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.